0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade guys. guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a
1: podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS
2: Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caperell, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we're joined by a very special guest, Brenda Smith. Brenda is Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of U.S. Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection and is responsible for overseeing U.S. trade agreements and enforcing U.S. trade law. With USMCA coming into force next week, we'll talk to Brenda about what CBP is doing to prepare, how her team is working with the private sector, and how customs work has changed over the past 25 years. Stay tuned for all that and more on this special USMCA Entry into Force episode of The Trade Guys. On this episode, we're joined by a very special guest for a special USMCA entry into force episode. And that guest is Brenda Smith. Brenda is the Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. She is, I would say, a trade guru since 2014. She has overseen... Trade enforcement, security, and facilitation matters at CBP. And that includes enforcing over 500 US trade laws, overseeing 14 trade agreements with 20 countries, and directing CBP's seven priority trade issues. So thanks for being here and welcome, Brenda.
3: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
2: I wanted to kick things off with a two part question. First, help our audience understand exactly what CBP does in implementing trade agreements. And then, Second, put that in the USMCA context. So USMCA enters into force on July 1. That's a week from when we're recording today. It's Wednesday of next week, right before the 4th of July. And so, you know, what does the trade community need to know about USMCA and what CBP is doing in implementing it?
3: So Customs and Border Protection, CBP, is responsible for managing the borders, which includes a lot of border security. But for this audience, really our primary role is to regulate the trade that goes into and flows out of the United States. We have over 320 ports of entry scattered around the country, air, land, and seaports. And so we see goods coming in via sea, land, and air. With respect to USMCA, because of our operational expertise and our legal expertise, we were very supportive of the negotiations, as well as very interested not only in the policy goals that were being expressed in these negotiations, but working to ensure that Customs and Border Protection's authorities and roles could really be moved into the 21st century. NAFTA is a generation old, and so we have a lot of New initiatives that we have developed with the private sector to facilitate and better enforce the laws and regulations around trade, which we wanted to see reflected in the new USMCA trade agreement.
2: Maybe dive into that a little bit more. So how does USMCA or how does CBP move itself into the 21st century with enforcing USMCA? You mentioned new initiatives with the private sector to help them comply with the agreement. Can you explain CBP's role in that a little bit?
3: Sure. So if you really think of the two aspects of trade, facilitation and enforcement, and I think in the last 25 years, what we've recognized is that being able to facilitate low-risk trade or compliant trade is really brings a lot of value to our economy and frankly provides goods and services to U.S. manufacturers, to U.S. consumers that we can support by ensuring that goods can flow across the border predictably and at low cost. And so being able to use things like technology to transmit information digitally, as opposed to processing via paper forms, using analytics to target High risk shipments means we don't have to stop every truck that crosses the border. And we also want to be sure that our efforts are harmonized with the efforts of our Canadian and Mexican colleagues so that we don't do it one way on our border and they do it their way on the other side of the border. And so I think those aspects are reflected in the new agreement. On the enforcement side, we are looking at leveraging our ability to trust each other, to act on our behalf. So for example, where there are verifications that we need to do on a particular manufacturing facility to to gather information, we can talk to our Canadian colleagues and have them act on our behalf. We have developed that level of trust over many years, but it really, I think, expands our enforcement footprint and makes sure that we are holding true to the laws that each country has.
1: USMCA has been a frequent source of conversation on this program almost since its inception. And uh, one of the things Bill and I have talked about a lot has been the automotive rules of origin. I know they're really different versus previous U.S. trade agreements of any sort. Could you tell us what's different and how the manufacturers and suppliers are responding and and how CBB is going to handle the complexity of the new rules?
3: So they are very complex. And in the auto sector, they are different. One thing that is not unfamiliar is the requirement around regional value content. In other words, a certain portion of a vehicle must be produced in North America. That requirement has gone up to over 70 percent, which will be a significant stretch for many of the automakers that we're used to providing in the neighborhood of 60 percent for the last 25 years. The other requirement that is is somewhat related is a requirement to use North America-produced steel and aluminum, and that use must be certified before those transactions are claimed under USMCA. The final new requirement for the auto industry is somewhat complex and and has been the subject of a lot of conversation within the Department of Labor and U.S. Customs and Board of Protection. And that is the labor value content, which requires vehicle manufacturers to pay workers in particular parts of their process over $16 an hour. That is going to be an interesting requirement to implement from the private Sector side because they've got to have a better sense of who they're paying what and how that goes into the formula for production. And from our perspective, we are looking at how do we validate that those wages are actually being paid. So we do a lot of validations using our audit resources. Department of Labor certainly has expertise on looking at wages and how those are accounted for in a company's books and records. And so the partnership between us is really critical to make sure that companies are meeting that requirement.
1: Are there transition rules or uh, something to phase this in so part of this transaction gets a chance to make it work and find a way to, uh, to make it effective?
3: There is several actually transition periods, but what has really come through loud and clear, and this is not new to us, is the need for information from the industry. We get tremendous number of questions. We've been doing a lot of outreach, which because of the pandemic response, we had to really bring online. We've also beefed up our website, including a chat bot that allows businesses and consumers to ask questions of CBP. What we're looking at as a result of the agreement are some initial requirements that are laid out and must be met by December 31st. We will work with them in a period of what's known as informed compliance, where they are required to meet the rules, but we are also somewhat flexible in our enforcement There's another mechanism for transition, which is called an alternative staging mechanism, which really gives the automakers a several years on those vehicle lines where they think they will have a challenge meeting the new requirements to really transition into the new requirements over the course of three to five years.
0: I think most people think of you guys as being the the people at the border, you know, actually looking at stuff as it arrives. That's the traditional uh, view. And if you're old like me, that's what you think of. What you're talking about, if you're going to verify all those things and not just the wage requirements, but verify the certifications about steel content, for example, or aluminum content, that takes you way back far away from the border, doesn't it? How many auditors do you have and how much does it cost you resource-wise? And how do you do it? Do you go out and meet with the companies? Do you actually physically examine products or how does it work?
3: All of the above. So we have approximately 3,000 000- trade personnel at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is an agency of roughly 60,000. Those 3,000 individuals really cover the range of goods that come into the United States, and they have expertise in knowing what the goods are, where they're from, how they're manufactured. We take that expertise and apply it to enforce trade agreements. So with respect to USMCA, it will be a mix of our commodity specialists that will be looking at manufacturing processes and the goods themselves, sometimes actually as they flow through a port of entry, they'll be there to open up containers and look at the physical goods. But more often, what we use is those same commodity specialists to review information after those goods have come into the United States to make sure that our requirements are met around, you know, are they valued correctly? Are they classified correctly? And then to do a real deep dive, we use our auditors. We have about 350 or 400 customs regulatory auditors that are well-versed in the rules and requirements, and they know what they're looking at when they do a deep dive into books and records. So it is a mix of physical verifications of the goods, or potentially of the manufacturing facilities when we actually may go to Mexico or Canada. The auditors will often be on those teams and they'll be in the back office looking at books and records. They work very closely with the companies around their financial cycles and will ask for large swaths of information using sampling techniques to pick off several transactions to make sure they're compliant. And then we'll look further, we'll pull on the thread as we find areas. of concern
2: Scott let me ask you a question about this entire process from the private sector perspective which is one that you have right listening to this I think as the average person it sounds like a ton of record-keeping work and it sounds like if there's not a lot of trust between the private sector and the government and between the different parties of the agreement it could become a real headache for companies and potentially a costly headache so how important is it from the company perspective that there is an institution like CDP that's doing you know proactive outreach that's making clear exactly you know how they're going to audit how they're going to determine compliance uh, and how they're going to work with companies I, I mean as a company how do you wrap your head around that and what are you looking for
1: yeah, it's a great question, Jack. Look, uh, I was fortunate to have been sort of present at the implementation of the original NAFTA. I, at the time, I was a, I was an operations manager, and I was actually in Toronto, Canada, but I had some facilities that I was responsible for that were part of the NAFTA phase-in uh, initially. So uh, a couple of things. Uh, first, at that time, that was a long time ago, Okay, but at that time, The motivation on the part of the company, once the agreement is complete, is to have excellent compliance. Companies structure themselves to operate within the law. When there's a new measure implemented, whether it's from a trade agreement or a regulation or wherever it comes from, companies act in a way, in general, to operate according to those new regulations and look for ways to manage the compliance efficiently. So I worked with a lot of really smart compliance people to handle the uh, what it took to uh, get the preferential rule of origin, what kind of record keeping and reporting was required, and to maintain that and maintain the audit trail. Because we were dealing, in the case of the business I was running, we were dealing with a lot of ingredients that were coming in from the United States and a few from Mexico processed in Canada and returned. These are actually NAFTA products, you know, even before NAFTA, they were NAFTA products, but the preferences were available only with the right record keeping. So there's a lot of that goes on company, company compliance mechanisms are very important. The difference between the, those olden days and today is many companies have used external contractors for their compliance functions. When I was doing this, I worked for, for a big company. These were all company employees. Okay. And so there was a level of trust and communication within the walls of the company that occurred at that time and were very important to maintaining a good compliance program. Now, if you're having contractors of some sort or, or specialists, outside specialists, auditors, whatever it might be, who are not within the company, that's another difficulty of the world of 2020 versus the world of 1994, 95, which is when I was doing this. So it's always a challenge. I think the intention is. Everyone wants to operate within the law, and they'll make the effort to do that in a way that's demonstrable. But this is a complicated rule with a very different corporate
0: backdrop. Well, you know, not everyone, although big companies, I think, are different. I want to ask Brenda about this. This is less an auto question than a general one about... USMCA. when I was at, at commerce, I was in doing export controls. I was in the enforcement business too. it was about stuff that was outbound, not inbound. but what we found was that big companies like Procter Gamble where Scott was uh, associated for a long time and, and the big defense companies, for example, and I think the large the auto companies, all of which are, are big, went to extraordinary lengths to comply. And they had a lot of in-house compliance people just to make sure that everything was right. Problem we always ran into were the small guys, you know, and the people that either didn't know what the rules were because they were new or the people that didn't care what the rules were and didn't have a lot to lose because they were small. Now, I don't think that's gonna be an auto issue, but Brenda, correct me if I'm wrong about that. But is that a problem on the import side as well?
3: It certainly is a challenge. You know, as we look at the different industries, you're absolutely right. Autos usually have this down. They spend a lot of money on compliance and get a lot of benefits out of the agreement. Agriculture, which is another industry that really uses the trade agreement um, with NAFTA, it's about a 97% rate of use of the NAFTA preferences for agricultural goods, a lot of those are small businesses. They're mom and pops that are bringing, you know, a couple of truckloads a week across the border of tomatoes or avocados. Those folks are the ones that we really have to make an effort to educate. A lot of times our best ability to do that is through their customs broker most of them work closely with customs brokers that serve as the interface between the government and the private sector they're very expert we regulate them we license them we also see a lot of value in making sure that they understand what the rules are so we spend a lot of time on webinars or have over the last month or so we also have put out implementing instructions and you know i think To your point, a lot of these small businesses don't have time to dive through 200 pages of implementing instructions. But I do think that that's where if they can pick up the phone and call one of our centers of excellence and expertise or talk to their customs broker, that they usually can find the right path through. And it's a repeatable process. So if they figure it out once, it usually can be applied multiple times.
2: Let me pull on that thread a little bit. You know, on July one. What is the biggest change that CBP is going to have to make? And then what do you think autos aside, like the biggest change from NAFTA to USMCA for importers or exporters, what do you think that's going to be?
3: So I think from a physical perspective, we're going to see it in two places. One is the automation. So whether you're a customs broker submitting on behalf of the small business we just talked about or one of the large corporations that are filing their own information, their automated systems have to be updated to reflect the changes in duty, changes in requirements. And so that's going to happen on July 1st. We've set up a war room that will be taking calls and providing advice. We've given businesses the opportunity to test their automated systems and the way that they talk to CVP. So that's been in place now for a couple of weeks. So I think our expectation is that that will go fairly smoothly. The other thing is actually an interesting thing. When NAFTA came into effect, big focus was on certificates of origin, right? You had to have that piece of paper and talk about record keeping. A picture, companies had drawers full of these Pieces of paper, physical certificates of origin. USMCA does away with requiring the official certificate of origin. What you now have to show is through your books and records or through some other documentation that your goods were produced where they are required to be produced. So it is actually a certification of origin that you can prove using other information. And we believe that that will take a significant amount of pressure off businesses that are trying to be compliant from actually getting that piece of paper from their manufacturer or their grower.
1: You know, that's an important point. Uh, and we get a lot of questions about, so what's the big deal? Why do we care? How is USMCA going to make things any better? Because we already had free trade with Canada was and Mexico. Beforehand, and it looks to the, to the, at least our listeners sometimes tell us that all we did is make autos more complicated. But there are a lot of simplifications for not counting the additions to the agreement in digital trade and some, some important new areas of coverage. Just the processing people were you who were using NAFTA before companies and firms using the NAFTA preferences before will now find a simplified compliance framework, and it it helps them to do business more efficiently. So there are upsides for a lot of traded products outside of autos.
3: There absolutely are. And I think the other thing that is really important is to, to recognize the modernization that's in USMCA. And while it may not be apparent on July 1st, I think over the long term, things like full implementation of a single window, so one place where each of our government's collect information about those trade transactions that need to be harmonized with each other. So the agreement really looks to us to harmonize our processes and procedures, whether it's automation or the way that we handle customs entry processes. Another thing that's important, I think, are the flexibilities around those customs brokers that we just talked about. There are a lot of rules and requirements, but I think what the trade agreement lays down is an agreement between the three countries that we need to liberalize the way those customs brokers are able to operate. So as companies are in multiple ports, or as they're national in nature, we are looking to make sure that we can be as flexible as private industry is.
2: What is the uh, cooperation with Canada and Mexico on issues like the single window and automation? What is that? look like? how's that experience been? I mean, is it going to be smooth sailing on July 1 or are there going to be some hiccups?
3: So we've been talking with our customs colleagues now, I, I want to say, for two years. And as we grow, one of the nice things about customs administrations is we work very closely together from an international perspective. We have global standards around best practices. And so we have a very strong relationship with our counterparts in Canada and Mexico. So we've been working on things like communications and outreach to make sure that everybody understands the requirements. But the longer term issues, you know, things like how do we get better at protecting intellectual property? rights. How do we work together to ensure that there is a fair labor environment? Those are things that are new in this agreement and that I think by working together, we can figure out not only what works, but what doesn't work. We have some experience in that area that we'd like to share and have shared. For example, Canada is looking to redesign their intellectual property rights protection. We are trying to provide information about what we do, what works well, what kind of investments we had to make, what expertise we had to have on hand. And I think that means you don't have to start from scratch if you're implementing a new initiative.
1: You know, I'm old enough to remember when the single window was a dream.
3: That's right. <laughs> That's right. Singapore
1: implemented it what about 25 years ago. And we all looked at it and said, boy, that'd be great. So yeah. it's wonderful to hear we're doing it. And the, the work on intellectual property is vitally important from a compliance standpoint with our partners. Because if the U.S. has strong protections, but our trading partners, in particular our neighbors, don't, essentially our protection becomes much more permeable than we'd like it to be. So uh, those are all good steps.
3: Yeah, we're excited about that.
2: Just to close things out. So let's go forward in time a week from now. It's July 1. If I'm a business, private sector business, uh, and I have a question about implementation, do I call you, Brenda, or do I call your office? I mean, what, what do I do?
1: We can leave your mobile number on the recording if of course. If you're not of course. Here. Give us your number, everything will be fine.
3: <laughs> yeah, the, no, no, because because there will be no issues, no questions. We right. will have done such a great job. No, <laughs> actually, we, we have a number of resources and appreciate the opportunity to, to lay those out. So a first stop should be CBP.gov, right? The official documents are there, the implementing instructions, the agreement itself, the legal notices, and you will see very soon the regulations will be published both the trilaterally negotiated uniform regulations, as well as our domestic implementing regulations. But really, the down and dirty of what you need will also be there in the implementing instructions. If you have automation questions, call CBP's War Room. If you have commodity-related questions, reach out to your center of excellence and expertise or your customs broker. All good sources of information for very specific questions. And use our chat bot.
1: You know, I've I've always found that the better prepared you are, the luckier you tend to be. And it sounds like you're well prepared, but let me just wish you luck because these transitions are tough. Sounds like uh, CBP is working very hard to accomplish it in an an effective manner. I I hope it goes well.
2: Yeah, and we'll have to have you back for an update on how all this is going because it's not just a one-time thing, right? You have to keep working at it.
3: That's exactly right. I think the next 12 months will be, you know, figuring out a lot of the ins and outs of the agreement and look forward to learning from those and making our adjustments along the way. So it really is a benefit to not only the government but also to the private sector.
2: Thank you again, Brenda. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you. We'll we'll all keep our fingers crossed. Appreciate the opportunity to talk. Take care.
1: To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at CSIS.org. That's tradeguys at CSIS.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks,
0: Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys. The CSIS Podcast.